Wow, that's a hard act to follow, isn't it? So good morning. Um, welcome again to OCC. Um, we are in the second week of our summer series, and this morning we're going to walk with Jesus up a mountain, and then we're going to walk back down again. So I hope you've come ready to hike. Um, we're going to work together a bit this morning. I hope that's okay. Our text, as has already been said, is Mark 9, um, verse 2 to 29, um, in case you want to look it up. And it's the part of, the, of Mark that talks about the transfiguration of Jesus and his healing of a demon-possessed boy. And we're going to try using our imaginations this morning to go a bit deeper into the text. There won't be a PowerPoint. Instead, um, hopefully in a minute, what you will have in front of you is uh, an amazing painting, here it is, by Raphael, which is just called Transfiguration, but which handily uh, includes all of our passage for this morning. And as you look at it, you might want to think about why he chose to include both stories in his painting. When we read the story, you'd be forgiven for thinking that the two halves of the story are quite separate, quite independent from one another. They have different tones, they're about different things, and they even have different groups of disciples in them. Why is it that Raphael brought together both of them? Maybe you might like to imagine yourself um, as one of the very glorious characters um, in the painting and experience the scene with them, and it will become clear as we read the passage who's who. In a minute, we're going to turn to our text, but first, where are we? If you were here last week, you'll have heard Ruth Hetler explain that by the time we get to chapter 9, we are at a peak moment in Mark's account of the good news. She called it a crescendo moment, which is true. Not only are we going up a mountain in the story, we've hit a high point in the text. The disciples have been with Jesus every day for a while now, and things are going really well. Their excitement and their confidence is building because here is a man who not only teaches with authority and catches their imaginations, he also exhibits power alongside his words. He can take people with chronic and terminal illnesses and make them well instantly. And he hasn't stopped at healing just their physical bodies, he also heals their sin. He frees people from their history so that they can be who they were made to be. He is remarkable, our Jesus, isn't he? What's more, he has been training and equipping his disciples to do miracles too. Their very hands have fed thousands of people with tiny amounts of food. And they've gone off on their own without Jesus and healed people themselves. How are they feeling at the moment They're winning, aren't they? They're totally buzzing. And Peter has just put the cherry on the top by taking a risk and naming Jesus as the Messiah. And Jesus hasn't corrected him. That word Messiah was an incredibly loaded term for Jews like Peter. They had very clear ideas of what it meant and what went with it. Ruth talked a little bit about this last week, didn't she? Their minds are full of thoughts of overthrowing their Roman oppressors of freedom for their people at last, and of power. Lots and lots of power. But six days ago, something shifted. 
Jesus' tone, and more worryingly, his teaching has got darker. He started looking them in the eye and talking about suffering and rejection and death. We're told in verse 32 that he spoke plainly about this. And for a man who loved to hide his meaning in parables, this is something new. Jesus is leaving no room for error, not for them and not for us. And yet despite this, not a single disciple seems able to understand. His teaching about what is to come is so far from their ingrained expectations that they are completely thrown off kilter. Peter, our star pupil, has just taken his Messiah aside and rebuked him for um, speaking about his own death. And Jesus has aligned him with Satan. (laughs) You don't fall much further from grace than that, do you? And now, here we are, six uh, in our passage. Here we go. Ready? After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. It's really quiet up there on that mountain. After all that's gone on six days ago, I suspect they're all a bit subdued. They've got lots on their minds, haven't they? Jesus has been preparing himself to walk towards Jerusalem with all that that means. He's resolute, but he's grieving, and the disciples are confused and tense. And suddenly, with absolutely no warning, there Jesus suddenly looks completely different. His clothes, it says, became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. He is transformed. Gone is the dust and the sweat and the smell. Are we allowed to say that about Jesus? And in its place, there's this dazzling brightness that drives them to their knees. Charles Spurgeon describes it really beautifully. He says, In the midst of all his sorrow and humiliation, our Lord let out some gleams of his glory to remind us who he was, even while he was here in the depths of his grief. He was still none other than the all-glorious Lord of heaven and earth, whose raiment, if he chose to make it so, would be whiter than snow and brighter than the sun. (laughs) And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, it says, who were talking with Jesus. And they're talking about Jerusalem and his death too, but the disciples don't know that yet. To them, the whole scene is utterly remarkable, and to Peter, in particular, it's really good news. Because this scene before them is much more in line with what they were expecting from their Messiah seven days ago. And Peter is convinced it should be permanent. Jesus' appearance now makes him unmissable as the Messiah. And the presence of the extra two men with him is really good news as well. Moses and Elijah. Moses in Jewish heritage is the man who gave words to the vast majority of Jewish history. He's the one responsible for all that legal scaffolding that allows their Jews' relationship with God. Moses is the law. Elijah was their most powerful prophetic voice, and even better, he is the anticipated forerunner to the Messiah. Surely then, this is it. The kingdom has come, and much to Peter's relief, there's not a cross in sight. Jesus is alive and well, and Peter has just been vindicated for rebuking him. And when Peter gets emotional, he gets a bit mouthy, 
Anyone else have that problem? He says, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Hooray, let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Mark says he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Bless. He really puts his foot in it, doesn't he? Poor old Peter, he has no idea that what he's seeing just now is just a temporary gift, a kindness from Jesus to undergird them while they endure all that will happen until his eventual resurrection. But there's more. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. The words that God chose were really familiar, weren't they? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, were spoken over Jesus at his baptism by the same voice. Only now, they include a command that can only be for the disciples. Listen to him. Because they haven't been listening, have they? They've been in denial. They've been busy rebuking him and trying their best to build shelters. The thing about listening is that it requires closeness. To listen, you have to be within earshot, which means that the option for them to stay on the mountain is long gone. If they are to heed this voice, they have to follow Jesus on that road to Jerusalem and the cross. And what's more, if they're going to really listen, they will also have to obey him. If you're listening, you can't just nod sagely and walk away unchanged. That's just called hearing. Listening requires concentration and processing. Listening changes things, and it changes us. And now, as they turn and they trudge back down that mountain, as they leave this precious vision behind them, he tells them to tell no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. He's committed to his theme of dying, isn't he? And they still have no idea what he's talking about. Listening is hard. And on that long walk back down, they ask Jesus about Elijah. Of all the questions that they could have asked, they chose a technicality. And Jesus reminds them of John, his Elijah. And he reminds them of his awful death. And that really doesn't make things any better. I suspect that their journey back down that mountain was pretty silent. Their minds have been completely boggled and they don't quite know how to relate to Jesus anymore yet. Each of them is tingling with holiness and Jesus is still a bit shiny. And this is the tone. This is what they carry with them as they descend that mountain. Are you with them? And as they become increasingly aware of a rabble and a rami at the bottom... So the transfiguration story is told in three out of four Gospels. The only one who doesn't bother telling it is the only writer who was witness to the event. It doesn't appear in John. But all the others tell the story of Jesus glowing and God speaking almost word for word. And they all follow it with the story that comes next, as if to them the two events are inseparable. Raphael, I think, was onto something, wasn't he? And they do it because the transfiguration of Jesus and the holiness, and the reality of the kingdom has a bearing on the mess in the valley, and it has a bearing on our lives. The passage says, 
When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder. That's the shiny bit, isn't it? And they ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth, and he becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. The disciples, the other ones, the ones he left behind, have been having a really bad day. Not only did they get abandoned in the valley, they've utterly failed to heal this poor lad. For the first time in a long time, they've tasted defeat and their own limitations. Remember the 5,000 and all the healings they did on their own. They thought that they knew how to do this. They thought they had all the tricks of the trade and that they were unstoppable, and then they failed. And to make matters worse, the legal experts were there to see it, and they have been picking holes in their ability and in their theology ever since. They are utterly humiliated. And to top it all off, when Jesus arrives, arrives, he loses it. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Can you hear his frustration? He's so human in this moment. Jesus has just had the most glorious time in his father's presence. And now he's facing the hardest walk of his life. He is vulnerable. And in his face, he has loads of noise and argument and failure and demons and disappointment. And he's had it. But even at his most frustrated, he doesn't give up on them. He doesn't turn away. Bring the boy to me, he says. So they brought him. And when the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And now Jesus' attention has switched, hasn't it? From the crowd, who were the source of his frustration, to this boy and his poor father, who are our victims in the story. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. This man is desperate. He is afraid. He's discouraged. Because he's already been there all day and nothing has worked. But now that Jesus is here, He's willing to give it one more go. Something inside of him isn't done yet. But Jesus has picked up on his wording, hasn't he? That little if in his sentence, and he calls him on it. If you can, he says. Now his tone has changed. Can you hear it? He's not shouting anymore. He's conversing. But he's not going to let that little if hang in the air between them. He challenges him. Everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Ah, that's better. 
There it is. That's what he wanted. Jesus knew that there was faith under all those layers of if, and he's teasing it out of the core of this man that he loves. And have you noticed the son? Have you forgotten about him yet? The whole time that Jesus has been ever so patiently questioning the father, his son has been fitting on the floor in front of them. But Jesus is not to be rushed. Why not? He isn't rushing because he's not intimidated. He knows who he is. And more importantly, he's not interested in simply getting the job done and moving on. What he's doing is involving this father in the healing of his own son. He is partnering with him by calling faith out from under the rubble of years of horror and working that faith into what comes next. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. Jesus does not want a crowd for this. This family has had enough critique for one day, haven't they? So suddenly, he's quite businesslike. He names the problem, he takes authority over it, and he gives the demon its marching orders. And then he makes it abundantly clear to said demon that these orders are lifelong. Never again will this affliction be welcome in the life of this boy. But it looks for a moment like he's failed. It says the boy looks so much like a corpse that many said... He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. It's an interesting way that verse 29 ends our story, isn't it? Because Jesus' frustration earlier with the crowd was about the unbelief in a generation. The aim of his conversation with the Father was to unearth his belief. But when pressed on it by the disciples, his explanation as to why they had failed has nothing to do with belief and everything to do with prayer. Where is the prayer in this story? We don't hear of it explicitly in Mark, but actually in other accounts, Jesus is described as being deep in prayer when he's transfigured. Maybe it is Jesus' own prayerfulness that made the difference here. Maybe. But maybe prayer can also be found in the behavior of the Father in this story as well. Charles Spurgeon also said, Men do not usually beg when they, have, when they expect nothing or hang around in the face of defeat unless they have some hope. We know that it took Jesus some digging to unearth faith in this man, and when he did, it came in an explosive cry, even though it was still covered in the crud of unbelief. It has been there all along, and it was a cry of prayer. His staying was prayer. Even when he and his son had become the source of the religious leader's scorn and condemnation, he stayed. His being willing to tell his story to Jesus yet again and engage in conversation about it after a day of disappointment was prayer. Maybe it is this praying that made it possible for this kind to come out of his son.
Now, I don't know who you've imagined yourself being in Raphael's painting this morning. There's some choices, isn't there? I'm aware, however, that this passage has fallen at a time when many in our church are living more valley than mountaintop, more dust than glory. Maybe you're one of them. We are in deep with the nine disciples and that father and his son, but in the time before Jesus has come back down the mountain. There is disappointment and failure and waiting and confusion. It is messy. People die. People get diagnosed. We pray for healing and things get worse. We watch those we love be be robbed of life and freedom and it feels like all we can do is stand by and watch. But I believe that this story is God's gift for us today. It reminds us that the holiness and the wonder of our transfigured Messiah is with us in the mess of our daily lives and in the complexity of our faith. It is the reason that Raphael painted the whole picture, the whole passage in his picture, and not just the shiny bits. Jesus hasn't given up on us, and he isn't defeated by our circumstances or our unbelief, even if we often see defeat. And what's more, as we've sung about this morning, in these post-resurrection days... Jesus isn't an entity separate to us, another person shining independently. He shines within us. His kingdom is within us, even as we crack. Just as that demon was banished from that boy for the rest of his days, so the spirit glows within us for the rest of our lives. Jesus is in it for the long haul, and it's called eternity. And that invitation that he's given his disciples to stay close and listen also belongs to us, even if staying close means walking with him into suffering, and his words sometimes are hard to hear. And of course, he's calling us to prayer, and that sometimes looks like sheer bloody-mindedness, and it sometimes looks like words. The title of today's sermon is Get on Your Knees. So it's understandable that you might have been expecting another sermon on prayer. But I think that what drives us there can equally be wonder and awe at who our Saviour is, as much as grief and prayer in our valley. And there is time for you to do that this morning. You are welcome to literally get on your knees or you can do so with bowed and kneeling hearts either way. Let's take some time to sit with him in this story this morning. And if you find as you do so that you would benefit from some company, you are really welcome to come down the front and somebody will pray with you. My words may well be finished this morning. Um, We were given the challenge of 20 minutes, and that's passed. Um, But I would like to invite you to stay with Jesus as he speaks to you about this story. Go back to the picture. Put yourself back there again. Figure out who you are and what Jesus has for you this morning and all that we've spoken about and all that we've imagined. We need to pick our kids up at 12 (laughs) if they've gone out. Um, But before I finish, I'm just going to pray for us, if that's all right. Father, Lord Jesus, thank you for opening our eyes this morning to see you glorious. 
to encounter the unmistakable kingdom right here in the mess of our lives. Thank you for reminding us of that part of who you are, even as you teach us to embrace a victory that looks like suffering. Thank you that our disappointment and polluted belief is not too much for you. And thank you that you call us close, that you have things to say to us, and that you teach us to pray with our lives as well as with our words. Even as we are your suffering disciples, may we also share in the power of your resurrection. May we also partner with you as you restore those we love back to life again. Bless us, Lord, and overcome our unbelief. Amen.